welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. In Matthew chapter 28 we read, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers uh, to Galilee. Uh, You'll tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. That right there is the resurrection account according to Matthew in chapter 28. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning to celebrate the greatest event in all of history, let our hearts be open today and ready to receive your word with gladness and great joy. And I pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do here today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to say good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church. We are excited to have you here this morning, particularly this morning because today we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, if, if you're new here, if you've not been here before, or it's been a long time since you've been here, uh, the resurrection is something actually we celebrate every week, not just on Easter. It's something that we celebrate every week. Every single week we're singing about and we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and we talk about other things here too, like you know, like grace and forgiveness and mercy, and, and we talk about things like family and, and, and community and work and finances, and we talk about real practical things like you know how to follow Jesus or how to, to be a better parent or you know how to how to make a better community for yourself or, or how to share your faith with people, um, how to be a better spouse. Uh, but throughout the year, we talk about lots of things, but always, always at the center of what we talk about is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and at the very center of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Jesus. The historical fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, was laid in a tomb, and three days later he literally and physically rose from the dead. And so every week at some point we talk about and we celebrate the resurrection because it is, it's really the foundation for all of our hope. It's, it's the foundation of our faith. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of the entire you know, belief system that we have. It's, our, our, it's, it's the foundation of our worldview. And the reason for that is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in all of human history. It's the greatest miracle that's ever happened. It's the greatest single theological idea that's ever taken place place. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, willingly died on the cross for, for all mankind to, to, to save us from our sins. And three days later, he, he rose, proving that he is what he claimed to be. Okay, in fact, let me just read for you again this story. Now, let me read it from Luke's perspective. Luke 26, it says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, 
They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find a body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men bowed, uh, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember, he had told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, must be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, this right here, this is, again, one of the four accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's on this story, and it's on this historical event on which we build our faith as Christians. It is this event that we build all of our hope as Christ followers. Okay? And, and there's, a, there's a reason for that. In fact, let me, let me share with you this morning that reason. In fact, the words of Paul found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, beginning in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection uh, of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even proved to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people, we are all, we are of all people most pitied. So the reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith is because without the resurrection of Jesus, everything we do here, everything we say here, everything we sing about here, everything we do uh, to, to, to help people around the world, all of it is 100% meaningless and a waste of time and, and is in vain, as Paul says, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, Because as Paul says, if the resurrection didn't take place, we are still in our sins, which is something we need to talk about. Because, because we live in a world right here that does not like to talk about sin. We don't like to relate to sin. We don't even like to, to say that word. Okay? We, don't, we don't like to think of our lives as being sinful. What we want to do is we want to talk about right and wrong, speaking you know, uh, from our personal experience or from what our personal beliefs are. Our culture wants to, to believe that there are no hard and fast definitions of right and wrong, and so therefore there is no real sin. And we get that from our post-modern philosophy. And many of you might think, well, I'm not influenced by philosophy. Well, you're wrong because you are influenced by philosophy philosophy. Uh, because our culture's acceptance of postmodern philosophy, you know, that we get to, it's from that we get this idea that we really can't know things for certain. And because we can't know things for certain, then right and wrong simply become about our experience and our personal choices and what society has to say about right and wrong. And suddenly the truth becomes, you know, what's about me and what's true for me. And what's true for me might not be true for you. Or what's true for you might not be true for me. But once you get past this philosophical stuff, um, I think that we all understand that, that really in our hearts we know that there's something wrong. I mean, we all understand there's something wrong with the world. Okay, We all understand there's something wrong with people in this world. You don't have to look very far to figure this out. Okay? Just last week, we had this, the, the terrorist event in Brussels. 30, over 30 people died. Over 100 people were wounded. Okay? That's just one event in one week. 
That's just one news story, and every single day there's hundreds and there's thousands of news stories. Like the fact that the U.S. government finally has acknowledged that Christians in the Middle East are being uh, uh, persecuted, that, they're, that, that, that ISIS is actually committing genocide. Christians are being slaughtered for their faith around their world. Or how about the violence against law enforcement officers? Police officers sitting in their car, somebody walks up to them and just shoots them in the head. Okay? Or what about the rise of teen violence? You see that all the time on Facebook and, and, and YouTube. Okay? Or how about crime against children? In fact, just last week, a little girl, uh, 14 months old from Indiana, went missing from her own bedroom. And they found her a few days later in the woods. She had apparently been murdered. All right? You don't have to look very far to see that this world is broken. You don't have to, to, to have a college education. You don't have to be up to speed on all the latest current events to see that the world is broken. And not only do we see the world is broken, we see it in our communities, and we, and we see it even in a part of our families. Like the divorce rate. We see families that, that are tearing themselves apart. Or how about teenagers that are self-destructing? What about the proliferation of things like, like drug abuse and, and pornography? We see, that, see an increase in these kinds of things. We've even seen an increase in sexual assaults against younger and younger and younger children. In fact, the most disturbing latest trend is the number of 12-year-old girls who are not just sexually active, but are actually engaging in rough and violent sexual acts at the age of 12 because that's what they're seeing online. That's what they're, what they're being exposed to. Uh, pornography is normalizing that kind of lifestyle. You don't have to look very far to see that the world is broken. Okay? And you don't have to look very far to see that people are broken. People do disturbing things. Okay? And not just bad people. Good people do disturbing things. How many times have you said it or heard it said? Man, he's such a good guy. She's such a good person. I couldn't even imagine how they could do something like that. All right? How could they possibly be capable of that? All right? We know that people are broken. And we know that we are broken. We know that when we look inside of ourselves that we're capable of some really dirty, ugly, broken things. I mean, if, if every one of us in our lives, I mean, we have done things, all of us, that we are ashamed of. And you know that's the truth. In fact, when we talk about things that you're ashamed of, you don't have to look very far into your memory bank to see something that you are ashamed of. And there are things that you have done even still today. If you think about them, they make you uncomfortable and they make you feel a sense of shame. And what's worse is we're still capable of doing that stuff. We're still capable of doing those kinds of things. And even this, to this day, you still do things you shouldn't do that you know you shouldn't do. And you don't do the things you know you should do. And you think about the things that you know you shouldn't be thinking about. We all do because we are all broken sinners, which coincidentally is exactly what the Bible tells us. Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is probably the biggest understatement in the entire Bible. Okay? The Bible says very clearly we are all sinners. And so guess what? The Bible is very 100% correct on this point. Okay? And we know that this is the truth. We know that we're sinners and that we're broken. We know that we have all sinned. And so Paul tells us if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile because you're still in those sins. If Christ is not raised, we're still in the sins that, we have, that we're guilty of. Okay? And we're still in the, the, these, the, the things that, that, that make us ashamed. You see, that's the reason why Jesus came in the first place. Our sin is so bad and so vile 
Um, that, that we can't overcome it. We cannot fix it on our own. There's nothing we can do, nothing we can do to save ourselves. Not, there's not any religion in the world that can save us. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough. You cannot be charitable enough. You can't feed enough homeless people. You can't rescue enough kittens. All right. You cannot volunteer enough hours in your community. Okay. You cannot give enough money. You can't talk enough. You can't counsel enough. You can't love enough. You can't care enough. You can't have good enough intentions. Okay. You can't do near enough to make yourself right before God. In fact, the Bible tells us that our righteousness is but filthy rags before God. Our very best efforts, the best that we can offer God is nothing but garbage before God. Why? Well, it's not that our good deeds aren't good. It's just that our sin is that bad. Our sin stains and covers every part of our life, even the good things that we do. And as Paul said, if the resurrection has not happened, you're still in your sins because there is no other alternative. There is no other way. There's no other propitiation for sin. There's no amount of meditation you can do, no amount of prayer you can have. There's no amount of religious activity you can do. There's no amount of charity you can give. You cannot overcome the power and the stain of your sin and the penalty of your sin in your life. Okay, That is the hard and fast truth that we have to hold on to. And so Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're still in our sins and our faith is in vain. Even our preaching is in vain. And we're to be the most pitied people in the entire world because we think that we have the truth, right? We claim that we know the way out. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then there's no hope for anyone. Regardless of how pious you may be, regardless of how sincerely you may believe in something, you are still in your sins because your sins are that infectious. They cover every part of your lives. And that sin must be atoned for. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The penalty of our sin is death. And this death that Paul's talking about here is not just physical death here. Okay? He's talking about spiritual death. And really, in, in essence, what he's talking about here is eternal separation from the life-giving presence of God in permanent torment and darkness forever and ever and ever, which is what we call hell. And now there's many people in our postmodern culture right now that, that, that say that there is no hell. They just rebel against this idea that there's something out there or there's some type of punishment that awaits those who die in their sins. But instinctively, all of us understand something about justice. We have this natural sense of justice. We all have this understanding that somehow, some way, that there are some things okay, that need to be balanced out, that there's somebody out there or something out there that must balance the scales, that there are certain wrongs that must be made right. And I don't care how flexible a person is or how soft a person is on the concept of right and wrong, and I don't care about how many philosophical objections a person might have about certain things being right and certain things being wrong. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, if a person murders a member of your family, you're going to want justice. I don't care who you are. Okay? You're going to want justice to be done. If a member of your family is kidnapped and, and, and raped and tortured and brutalized, you're going to want justice. I don't care who you are. Okay? You're going to want justice and everyone around you is going to want justice as well because everyone is going to agree okay, on a certain level that there's some things 
that are right and wrong. At some point, those rights and wrongs must be atoned for. That Those people who commit those right and wrongs, those wrongs especially, uh, deserve justice. We all instinctively understand that. It's been built into us. It's ingrained in us to understand right and wrong and that it exists. And there are certain things that require justice. That justice at some point must be done. And the reason why we understand that and the reason why we, we get that and the reason why it's built into us is because we were created in the image of God. Okay, so what the Bible says, we were created in God's image like him, and he is a God of justice. You see, at some point, he will judge sin, and justice will be done. God will judge sin, and justice will be completely done, and you can count on that. In fact, Paul, that's why Paul says that, that the wages of sin is death. What is earned, the just reward for sin is in fact death. We deserve to be separated from God you know, for eternity because of our sins. And again, there are a lot of people in our postmodern philosophy that just, that just say, you know, hell doesn't exist. That's just a made-up thing. It's just a figment of our imagination. In fact, there's a couple of really popular pastors today who claim, you know what, hell is like just kind of a metaphor, right? It doesn't really exist. And nobody really gets sent to hell in the end because, you know, a loving God wouldn't, wouldn't do that. But let me, just, let me just tell you, if there's anything that the Bible is really absolutely firmly clear about, is the fact that hell is real. Okay. Jesus even talks about it. He spent a whole lot more time um, talking about hell than he did heaven. In fact, Jesus uh, said very plainly, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Jesus describes hell as a place of darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He also describes it as a place of torment uh, with no way to escape once you are there. Jesus very clearly understands hell to be a real place. And he makes a very real point to communicate that idea to us. And so that's where we stand right now. If Jesus isn't resurrected from the dead, then guess what? We are all still in our sins and we're going to be punished and all there is is the anticipation at the end of our lives that we'll spend eternity in torment with the rest of the world. That if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then there is no hope because you and I and everyone you know and love and care about are hell-bound. We are hell-bound to spend eternity in torment. This is the reality if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. But... If the resurrection did happen, if Jesus did come back from the dead, then our faith is not in vain, and we have hope. Now, why do we have hope? Well, it's simple. The Bible tells us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world, okay? That He, that he loved the world so much that He did what in-love people do. He gave Okay, and he gave what was most precious to him, his only son, Jesus, who in turn then gave his life for us on the cross so that whoever, okay, I mean, and whoever means no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, whoever believes in him, turns to him in faith, should not perish and spend eternity in hell, should not perish but have present tense in that moment eternal life. That right there is our hope. Okay? That is the hope that God sent His Son into the world to rescue those who put their faith and their hope and their trust in Christ. 
that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. But if Christ died and is still dead, then guess what? Nothing happened. Okay? We have no hope because Jesus would be just a dead Messiah. That is all. Okay? And he hasn't proven anything. But, but the truth is, three days later, he did rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why Paul says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection is a key component to salvation. It's the foundation of our faith because if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then he proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is precisely what he claimed to be. And let me just settle that for you. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Okay? And as such, He can do what He promised to do, which is to save sinners from their sins. That is what He came to do. That's why the resurrection is so important. Because without the resurrection, that doesn't happen. And Jesus isn't what He claimed to be. And as I said, Jesus claimed to be God Himself. Now, I don't want to get into a real long discussion about this point because we talk about this all the time. But let me just give you a couple examples to put this to rest. So when people say, well, Jesus didn't claim to be God, um, yes, he did. Okay, and it's, it's actually very clear. In fact, there are only two verses we need to look at to prove this. John 5, 58 uh, says, actually, in, well, let me just set this up. In this story, Jesus was uh, having a heated conversation with a bunch of Pharisees or Jewish religious people. And during this discussion, Jesus, in essence, basically says, you know, that Abraham knew him personally. And these guys are like, what? You're out of your mind. I mean, you're not even 50 years old. How could you possibly know Abraham? You're crazy. And then Jesus in that moment says the most controversial thing he could possibly say. Okay? He says something so controversial and so earth-shattering that these men immediately picked up rocks to kill him. Okay, this is an important point you have to understand. Okay, what he said incited them to violence. They wanted to kill him. And so they must, what he said must have been shocking and, and radical and highly offensive because these guys wanted to take matters in their own hands and actually put him to death. Okay, and what he said was simply this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And after he said that, they wanted to kill him for that. Okay, now what you have to understand is, uh, is, is you have to ask the question, why? I mean, why would, would somebody want to like kill somebody for a statement like that? What did he actually say? Well, think about this. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. He didn't say, before Abraham was, I existed. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. Okay? And the idea that he was communicating here, especially in this Greek expression, he was communicating eternal existence. And so essentially what he's saying was, before Abraham was, I eternally existed. Now, with that being said, I want you to take that thought and just kind of hold it in your head for just a moment. And, and we're going to look at Exodus 3.14. And in that part of the story in Exodus, Moses has already left Egypt. He has already ran because you know, he killed a, a, a guard in, in Egypt. And so he spent 40 years in Midian uh, as, a, as a shepherd, uh, just herding, you know, herding sheep around. And then you know, one day he's walking along and he sees this bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up. And you've probably heard the story before of Moses and the burning bush. But, uh, but Moses saw this bush burning and he approaches it and then God you know says to him because God's in the burning bush he says take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground and then God begins to explain to Moses that Moses is going to be the one to go to Egypt to rescue his people and Moses would do exactly what I did what, what I would do he started making excuses like uh no um I'm not smart enough I'm not good enough you know I mean I can't speak well enough he, he goes through the whole list 
And then finally, you know, Moses understands that God's not going to let go. And so he says, okay, all right then, if I'm going to do this, then tell me what your name is. Because I can't just go in there and say, well, God said to do this, all right? Because they're just going to think, well, you're crazy, okay? Um, but, but, but he said, so basically, tell me what your name is so that they'll recognize. When, so when I say your name, they'll know that it's you that sent me to them. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the name that God said that belongs to him. Okay? Not that I was, not that I will be, but I am. Eternally present tense. Okay? I didn't exist in the past. I don't exist in the future. I exist all the time in the present tense. I am eternally. Now, fast forward back to where Jesus was. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was very clearly telling them, that I'm God, and they picked up stones to kill him because they knew what he was saying. And what he was saying to them was blasphemy. And it was the worst kind of blasphemy to claim to be God. To claim to be the Messiah was not blasphemy because there were other Messiah figures in history. To claim to be a prophet was not blasphemy. To claim to be someone who, who has a, a relationship with God and that God speaks to him, that was not blasphemy. But to claim to be God in the flesh, that was the worst kind of blasphemy. And they would immediately try to kill somebody for that. And that's exactly what they tried to do to Jesus. And that was what the, Jesus claimed to do, to claim to be. He claimed to be God. And the resurrection proves that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And if he didn't come back from the dead, he didn't prove that he's God in the flesh. And, and, and you got to understand the importance of that. But if he did come back from the dead, then he is God in the flesh. And as such, he can do what he has promised to do, which is save sinners. In fact, Paul uh, tells Timothy, he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is why Jesus came. We are in our sins. There's nothing we can do to fix it. We're doomed to spend hell, you know, uh, for an eternity because of justice. Okay? And there's absolutely no hope on our own. And then God sent His Son to the earth to save sinners. Okay? And by His death, He paid the penalty of our sins. The resurrection is the absolute definitive proof that, 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 the, that, that sin and death have been completely conquered and that Jesus has the power to do what He said that He could do and that He is what He claimed to be. And that is why we have hope. That is why we celebrate Easter. Every single Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why... Um, we talk about it all the time because it's the foundation of our hope. Okay, and, and guess what? One day, there will come a time when this life is over. And there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. There will be no more strife and no more hatred, no more fighting, no more bitterness and no more uh, ISIS bombs and, and no more 14-year-old uh, little children being kidnapped and murdered. There'll be a time where there's no more pornography and there'll be no more 12-year-olds committing unspeakable acts just because they want to be loved and accepted. There'll be no more drugs and no more drug abuse and there'll be no more horrific acts of violence and no more racism. 
There's a hope beyond this life where all things are made right and where all things are made new. There's a new heaven and a new earth and that is where we will be and we'll be in the presence of God and we will live a life of overwhelming joy forever and ever and ever where we will continually learn more about God, growing in our knowledge of God and then relating to each other in a brand new way, in a pure way, where there's not going to be any more insecurities between us, okay? Where, the, where, where, where we have um, uh, hope between us. The hope is that, that we're all looking forward to, where we, we can tear down those barriers, okay? And the reason why we look forward to this is because, because Jesus came into the middle of history. Jesus came in the middle of history, became the first fruits of all of the resurrection, Okay, the reality is of the resurrection points to the reality of the, of the resurrection of the dead. It will actually happen, that we will actually be raised with him. That is, actually, it will take place, and we have hope in that. In fact, Paul says that there will be a time when we will have glorified bodies just like Jesus. That, that at the resurrection, we will, we will be incorruptible, meaning your bodies will not be sick anymore. Meaning you will never experience pain anymore. Remember, meaning that you will not have strife that you have before. I mean, just think about this. Think about the hurt that you've suffered in your life so far. How would your life finally be if, if there were, those hurts were gone and all you knew was joy? And for those of you who are in pain, imagine waking up every day and, and not having any pain in your bodies, no stiffness in your joints, no, uh, no aches in your muscles, no pain in your heads. Imagine for those who suffer from depression, waking up every day with perfect clarity okay, and a perfect sense of purpose and be able to, to just stand and be joyful, not having to worry about whether or not you're sliding off into a depression. Imagine a life where you don't have to explain to people what depression's like, where you have to just kind of like, you know, help them understand. Right? Imagine what life would be like if you and your family members and your loved ones could, could just all talk without misunderstanding each other and, and, and without the, the difficult conversations. And, and imagine what life would be if you didn't have secrets anymore, where you lived your lives out in the open all the time and you were able to be completely honest and authentic all the time, smiling and loving and enjoying each other's company all the time, visiting and loving and caring about each other all the time, living those fulfilling relationships all the time without end with your friends and your family and with your mom and your dad and your grandma and grandpa, you know, and, and people that, that, that you want to have relationships so bad right now, but you can't have a relationship with them right now because something's happened, because there's so much junk in the way. Imagine when all those barriers are tore down, all that sin is tore down. That is what our hope is. That's exactly what we're all hoping for. That is what the resurrection celebrates. That's what the resurrection points to. The reality of that truth, the reality of the truth of that there's something beyond this life. That's what the resurrection points to. And that's why we continue to celebrate it. That's why we continue to look to Christ, the risen Christ, risen from the grave. That's why we look at him and we say, that's our hope. That's the reminder that it actually happened 2,000 years ago. God intervened into history, not just to tell us, I love you, okay? But he actually demonstrated it. God intervened in history not to just say, I love you and you're forgiven. No, he intervened in history to demonstrate it. He demonstrated his love for us. In fact, that's what Paul exactly says in Romans 5.8. He says, God shows or demonstrates his love for us while we are still sinners. Christ died for us. 
And that he was resurrected three days later to demonstrate that he has the power to overcome sin. That is why the resurrection is so important to us. That's why we celebrate it. That's, that, that's, that's why we're here today. That's why we're talking about it. Because there is the hope that we have. Now, if you don't already believe in Christ and the resurrection, you might say, well, wait a minute. You're just basing all of that on some story. Okay, a story that you read in a book that was written like 2,000 years ago. Okay, a book written by men who lived in a really superstitious time. I don't know how you can believe a story like that. I, I mean, that story is so incredible, so unreal. How can, an un how can an intelligent person possibly believe a story like that? Well, that's, that's a great question. It's a very fair question. In fact, that's why Paul brings it up. Okay, because right from the beginning, right from the very start, all right, we saw this, okay? Jesus, because Jesus' disciples, they were not expecting for him to be raised from the dead. They weren't expecting for him to come back. In fact, Jesus, when he died, no one was waiting around for the stone to be rolled away. They weren't standing there on that, that first Easter, you know, counting down as the stone, you know, rolled away and as, and, and as the sun rose, okay? They were huddled away and they were terrified because they knew that they were next, Okay? And they knew what we know. Dead people stay dead. They don't come back from the grave. They weren't expecting him to come back to life. In fact, the Bible tells us when Jesus appeared to them, okay, they were huddled in a room, locked. Okay? They were scared. They were terrified. They ran when Jesus was arrested for cowards. In fact, when he did come back, he had, when he appeared to somebody, people around them didn't believe it at first. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, and at first she didn't even recognize him. Okay? She wasn't expecting him to come back. And then when she realized it was him, she went and told the other disciples. And guess what happened? They didn't believe her. Right? Okay, why would they believe her? Such an incredible story. Nobody comes from back from the dead. I mean, I mean, that's what we would say today, and that's what they said back then. Nobody comes back from the dead. And then they go and they look and see the empty tomb. They wonder what happened. And then Jesus appears to the apostles, except for Philip, you know, in a room. And when that happens, they don't even believe when it happened that it was real at first. In fact, Luke records Jesus' appearance to the apostles this way. He says, as they were uh, talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And they said to them, and he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and, and, and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. They even doubted their own eyes at first when Jesus appeared to them. Okay? There was, I mean, and then once they realized he was alive, okay, then they get excited about it, and then they go tell Thomas, all right? Now think about this. Thomas spends three and a half years with these other, uh, like, ten guys. All right? He spends three and a half years with these ten guys every single day with Jesus all the time. All right, they know each other. They hang out with each other. I mean, they're hanging out with God. So, like, there's, there's not really like, many secrets between these guys. They know they can trust each other for the most part. All right, but these ten guys come to tell Thomas, say, hey, Jesus is risen. And what does he say? Psh, I don't believe you. 
I mean, these are like your 10 closest friends, your most reliable people that you can like count on. And they're saying, Jesus rose from the dead. And he's like, I don't believe you. He says, I need to see the holes in his hand. You know, I'm going to put my finger in the holes in his hand and I'm going to put my hand in his side, you know, before I believe because, pe because dead people don't come back from the dead. All right? I'm not going to believe that until I can actually like physically touch him myself. And then Jesus appears to Thomas, and then he says the most profound thing. He says, my Lord and my God, because he finally recognized the truth. And that was the natural order of things. Doubts is the natural response to the idea that somebody coming back from the dead. Dead people don't stay, I mean, dead people stay dead. Dead people don't come back from the dead. That's pretty much how we all understand it. That's where they were 2,000 years ago. And then, and then guess what? That's what people say today. But guess what? Today, we are 2,000 years later celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And we have in our Bibles not one and not two, but four separate eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew and John were there. They saw what happened and they wrote down what they saw. Mark was a friend of Peter, and he interviewed Peter, and, and Mark wrote down what Peter's story was. And then Luke was a physician and a historian, and he interviewed everybody, including Jesus' mom, and he wrote down the story. See, the Gospels aren't just some stories. They're eyewitness testimonies. Now, here's the thing. It's not that just they're eyewitness accounts, because what you have to understand, the reason why I can have faith and why you can have faith in the resurrection is that the resurrection is, in fact, the best attested to historical event of all antiquity. There are no other events in all antiquity that have more evidence to support them than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not the life and the exploits of Julius Caesar. Not the life and the conquest of Alexander the Great. Not the life and the writings of even Aristotle and Plato. The resurrection of Jesus is the best attested to historical event of antiquity. Okay, and, and if, you're, if you're talking about any other event in history, if, if this was something else, nobody would even doubt it by the sheer volume of the evidence. But because, because this is a miracle, people just struggle with it. People struggle with the idea of somebody coming back from the dead. It causes people to, to struggle. And the truth is, the evidence is actually overwhelming. In fact, I'm going to wrap up this morning. I just want to take a real quick minute. I just want to just share with you some of the basic evidence for the resurrection of, of Jesus. And we talk about this all the time. This is one of the most foundational things that we talk about. But let me just share with you just a few basic quick points um, to make sure that you really understand that Jesus historically rose from the grave. And the first thing is, number one, Jesus was actually a man in history. Okay? This might seem like really simple, but there are some people that will still deny the existence of Jesus. But all historians agree, regardless of their belief, whether they believe in Jesus or not, whether they believe in God or not, they all agree that Jesus was a man in history. There's not one credible historian that would say that Jesus did not exist. In fact, anyone who would say that Jesus did not, didn't, didn't exist simply doesn't know the facts and they spend way too much time watching the conspiracy videos on YouTube. Okay? I'm just, okay, that's just the basic truth. It's the basic reality. Jesus living on the earth is, is immutable. It's a historical fact. Then number two, Jesus, in fact, suffered on the cross. Again, all the evidence points to that. All credible historians say that's exactly what happened to him. Even ancient historians who were writing near the time of crucifixion testify that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Number three, and here's where things get interesting, 
Okay? Number three, three days later, after Jesus died and was laid in his tomb, the tomb was in fact found empty. Okay? All credible historians, whether they're skeptical, whether they're believers, they all agree that the tomb was empty. And this includes skeptical scholars who refuse to believe in the resurrection. Okay? They will attest the fact that the, that, that the tomb of Jesus was empty. They can't explain why it was empty, but they will say that the tomb was empty. 2,000 years ago, a 2,000-pound stone was rolled over the entrance of the tomb of Jesus. A squad of Roman soldiers were stationed outside of the tomb, and somehow how the tomb ends up empty and nobody wants to say why. Okay? And then, number four, shortly after the tomb was, being, was, was empty, all of his disciples, not just the 11 apostles, all of his disciples saw the risen Jesus Christ. They saw him after he died. Even the skeptics agreed that they saw something. In fact, Bart Ehrman, the most famous skeptical scholar in our time, Okay, an atheist, he says, that somehow Jesus appeared to his disciples. He said, I can't argue that. It's a matter of history. He just can't explain how it happened. Jesus appeared to his followers after his death. It's a fact of history. In fact, let me just share with you this really short video that explains this. Paula Fredrickson, Boston University. I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say, and then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I don't know what they saw. But I know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Is there any reason to believe that an extraordinary event like the resurrection actually happened? We might be encouraged to know that since the first Christians made the claim that the resurrection was Jesus' physical body coming to life and leaving an actual, literal tomb, as opposed to simply a spiritual belief that Jesus had come back again as a ghost or was alive in their hearts as a memory, it can be studied in the same way other historical events can be. Like Hannibal's invasion, complete with the elephants, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, or the Broncos being crushed by the Seahawks in Super Bowl 48. Historical research is well respected, even though, unlike scientific research, you cannot place historical events under a microscope or contain them to a lab. Historians put reports together from written sources and eyewitnesses or anything else that was known from the time and place of the events to reach reasonable conclusions about what may have actually happened. While many pieces of evidence can be used to point to the reality of Jesus' resurrection, we will focus on three. Number one, the early church exploded on the scene of the ancient world with the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead as their central proclamation. Many movements are gradual in building momentum, and when it comes to larger-than-life, legendary or miraculous characteristics claimed by these movements about their leaders, those ideas usually take decades and sometimes even centuries to develop. From what we know about Christianity, the claim that Jesus rose again from the dead was made from the very start, serving as this new religion's central idea. A passage that is thought to reflect the very earliest Christian belief, a founding Christian leader writes, I want to remind you of the good news I proclaimed to you. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead. Within a very short time, this movement had taken the ancient world by storm built on the testimony of those who claimed they had seen Jesus alive after death. There is every indication that they must have seen something. 
Number two, the earliest followers of Jesus claimed to be eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection and went to their deaths proclaiming it. Now we all know people die for their beliefs. That does not make their beliefs true. But one thing it does for all of them, it is a very strong indicator that they believed what they were saying. It's been said liars make lousy martyrs. The early followers of Jesus claimed first to have seen Jesus die and raise again from the dead. Their deaths are an indication that they certainly believed they had. They must have seen something. Number three, Jesus' resurrection was seen by his earliest followers and friends. But in addition, a very unusual thing happened around the same time. Two men who were self-described skeptics, even enemies of the idea of Jesus' divinity, turned from their skepticism to claim that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. The first was Jesus' own brother James. Historians are confident that we have good information regarding James, and we know he began as a skeptic over Jesus' claims to divinity. From what we know, he appears to have thought Jesus was decidedly not the Son of God, but also that his brother was a little on the kooky side, which, if you have a brother, you may be able to relate to. But somehow, James makes a complete turnaround in his view of Jesus, and the explanation he gives is, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He must have seen something. Then there was a man named Saul of Tarsus. He not only did not believe in Jesus, but when the news about him began to travel, he believed this new movement was a dangerous and destructive idea. He took it upon himself to oppose believers, even violently. He had people killed and put in prison just for believing in the resurrection. Then suddenly, Saul does one of the most amazing 180s in the history of 180s. He goes from sworn enemy of the new faith to one of its most passionate and vocal promoters. What happened? According to him, the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. He went to his death never backing off that claim. He must have seen something. Atheist New Testament scholar Jed Ludman It must be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. They must have seen something. <clears throat> now we can go on and on and on about the evidence for the resurrection. In fact, I've done whole you know, uh, sermons and, and, and series on the subject, but the fact is the, the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. Jesus coming back from the dead was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it's the best explanation of all of the historical evidence uh, presented. And, uh, and the fact is that Jesus coming back from the dead is not some theological idea, it's not a myth, it's not a story, it's not some religious thing. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real, literal, historical event that happened in the past and it points us to the promise and the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus is what he claimed to be. He is God in the flesh and he can do what he promised to do. He can save us from our sins. It's because of the resurrection um, and because it's a real event in history that our preaching is not in vain and your faith is not in vain. And so that is why we celebrate. Now, today is Easter. And uh, today's a perfect day to walk in the new life that Jesus has to offer. And, and I'm going to ask you, you know, to make a decision today, one way or the other. 
If you're someone who has not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to encourage you to do that. In fact, um, in just a minute, I'm going to lead you through a prayer and give you an opportunity to do that. Uh, but I also like to speak to those who are Christians, and maybe you've trusted Christ, uh, but for some reason, you know, you're at a place in your life where you're just distant from God, where there's decisions you've made or where the things have happened in your life. You know, you just kind of like stepped away from God, and you're just not doing the things that you know that you should, and you're not walking the way that you should uh, with God. And so I'm going to encourage you that today is a great day to recommit yourself to Christ. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an opportunity to do that as well. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to draw close to God uh, and, and close to Christ who paid the price to set you free. In fact, let's just all take a moment. Let's just bow our heads. Um, and uh, if you're ready to receive Jesus today, if you're ready to, to recommit your life to Jesus today, uh, then I'm going to ask you just to pray this prayer with me. Now, understand this prayer is not magical. It's not, these words are not some special incantation, okay? It's just simply a reality. If this prayer is a cry of your heart and you will confess these words, they represent then your commitment to know Christ and follow Him and that He can save you today. And so let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am clear that I have fallen short. I know that I have, I'm a broken sinner. I know that, that, that I am just covered up in it. I, I know the things I've done. I know the things that I've thought in my life. And I realize that I can't fix it. I understand that's just the truth. No matter how good I try to be, I'm, just, I'm not capable of saving myself. And I need to be rescued. I need for you to rescue me. And I take you at your word today that you sent your son to die for me. And then on the third day, you rose him from the grave. In fact, I'm going to confess right now that Jesus is Lord. And that I believe in my heart that you raised him from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh. And that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save me from my sins. And so I throw myself at the feet of Jesus and I beg you to rescue me. I place my hope and my trust and in in, in, in all that I am in Christ that I will not put my trust in me, I put my trust in Jesus. Not in a religion, but in a relationship with your risen Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'd fill me up with your Holy Spirit today. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Help me to know you better. And, and help me to live a life that demonstrates that I belong to you. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for rescuing me. And I thank you, Lord, for drawing me back. And for those who, who need to, to recommit yourselves, then just do that now. Lord, I, I've fallen away. And, and, and the love that I have for you, sometimes it, it, it grows cold, not because of you, but because of me. Fill me up afresh and brand new with your Holy Spirit. Help me to desire you. Help me to desire time with you in your word and in prayer. Help me to want to be the person you want me to be the parent you want me to be, the, the child you want me to be. Help me to be all those things you want me to be. Help me to follow you with all my heart. I just recommit myself to you today, Lord. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for loving me. And we praise you and we honor you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Mm. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.